Hello and welcome to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, the founder and director of Liminal, Louise Fitzjohn. podcast is an opportunity to speak to the contemporary artists I'm exhibiting in my Margate-based art gallery. With an exciting program of solo and group exhibitions, hosting this podcast is a fantastic way to delve deeper into the artist's practice and to probe their innermost thoughts about their exhibitions. Liminal Gallery was founded in April 2021 and works with contemporary artists currently practising across the UK and Ireland, showing the incredibly diverse creatives that are based here. I've been working in the art world for over a decade and I'm incredibly passionate about fully supporting the artists that I work with and I spend most of my time trawling through social media to find artworks which blow my socks off. The artists I work with have an approach which I haven't seen before, a unique talent which spans across the mediums. I'm so excited to share these artists with you as we have in-depth conversations exploring the artists' lives and works into what makes them tick and what gets a ticking off. So I hope you'll join me both on this podcast and down in Margate where you can see the exhibitions of these artists in person. I'm delighted to share that the ninth guest on the Liminal Gallery podcast is with contemporary artist Flora Bradwell, who is exhibiting in our group show entitled Try Little Tenderness, which opened on the 4th of February in Liminal Gallery. Flora Bradwell's riotous multidisciplinary work spans painting, sculpture, video, performance, textiles and curation. Nothing is quite as it should be in the artist's absurdist scenes rendered in vivid, naive strokes of colourful paint and plush soft sculpture, which are nothing short of bizarrely vulgar. Drawn to myth, folklore and fairy tales, there is a sense of camp theatricality which infuses her work as viewers are engulfed in the stage sets of her dimly recognisable imagined worlds. They demonstrate the ridiculousness of patriarchal systems and gossip fuels visual flights of fancy as the props of daily life are put on a pedestal. Bradwell completed her BA in painting at City and Guilds in 2009 and her MFA at the Slade School of Fine Art in 2021. While at the Slade, Bradwell received the Felix Slade Award, the Gian Sago Prize and Sarah Bang Emerging Artist Bursary. Bradwell is a recipient of the Gilbert Bays Award 2023 and artist in residence at the Van Gogh Huey in April 2023, later this year. Flora's work has been exhibited, screened and performed internationally, including at the Whitechapel Gallery, Nunnery Gallery, Saatchi Gallery, the Royal Academy of Arts in London, at Future DMND in LA, Zaratan in Lisbon and at the European Media Arts Festival in Osnabrück. Bradwell has completed residencies at Elephant Lab London in 2022, Cypress College of Art, to name a few, and she also curates art events, exhibitions and happenings across the UK and is the co-director of Bad Art. Flora Bradwell, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Pleasure. Hooray. (laughs) So just to add to that introduction... You currently have an exhibition on in East London, which you co-curated with former podcast guest and artist Lindsay G. McLean. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. With Lindsay G. McLean and Isabel Atticus at Haifa Studios in Stratford. It's called Who Holds the Sword? It's about medieval contemporary takes on who gets to hold the sword. So often... The depiction of the sword is maybe quite phallic and is like the single hero who holds aloft this sort of sharp weapon. And we thought about maybe thinking about the collective holding the sword, thinking about the lady of the lake and who gets to hold this sword. I've said the word sword maybe about 100 times already and we're about (laughs) 30 seconds into the podcast. But yeah, it's queering like gender norms and playing about with the idea of weaponry. And it's really rather fun. We've got an armory wall full of tufted swords, knitted swords, a sword by a seven-year-old, a sword by Lindsay's mum, all sorts of swords. And then you've got medieval banquet with PVC pig's head. You've got flaccid, sad-looking knights. You've got 
and a fantastical sort of heart-shaped guillotine suspended from the ceiling and that's the energy so yeah that is who holds the sword amazing and it's in a massive space right yeah it's huge it used to be a Sainsbury's and now it's got two art shows on in the entire space and it's bloody enormous we were shocked and appalled when we saw how large it was but we've actually had a real good time filling it with just sublime and ridiculous artworks by some really talented gorgeous humans got mural in there um got it all and we've got coming up is a a sword making workshop fun for all the family free event and we've got medieval karaoke happening on the 4th of march so yeah so lots of stuff happening alongside it which is really exciting that is and how long is it on for uh, it's on till the 10th of march yeah so it's got a nice run it opened on the 26th of january so a lovely bit of time to catch it a few little cheeky events going on alongside it and oh it's just really it's a really great show and they're really great humans to collaborate with to make things happen so we've just had a ball and we've you know discovered things like bardcore which we never knew existed which was actually a discussion that we had last night bardcore who knew but you can get medieval covers of Shakira hips don't <laughs> lie yeah it's fantastic bardcore everyone should google it immediately or maybe I'm giving the game away but yeah I mean it's very lucky for us that that existed because we pitched medieval karaoke before we knew that that might be the backbone of our event but yeah it's great it looks like an incredible show I am definitely going to try and make it along um, it's difficult to curate in a massive space like that hats off to you guys because I think that from the photos that I've seen you've done such an amazing job it just feels really exciting there's something new to look at every turn it can feel very static when it's a space that big so yeah I think you guys have done well yeah, I think there's. it's good because things have got room to breathe, but they also are having little conversations in corners with each other, which is lovely. So, yeah, I think we're really pleased with the way it's been. It's been like so busy, so buzzy and with the way it kind of looks and feels and all the conversations that are coming out of it. So it's I think like for us, the mark of maybe a show that we enjoy is like number one we've had fun doing it but number two it's sparking more conversations and I think future collaborations and and future work and so that's that's always the dream really with anything yeah well going back to your work a lot of your work is inspired by mythology is there a particular culture's mythology that appeals to you and what is about these often moralistic tales which excites you I wouldn't say there's like a particular culture I think Initially, like I was thinking about mythology in terms of the stuff that you might encounter in childhood. So more nursery rhymes and then mythology really like started to have more of a dialogue with my practice when I thought about the vagina dentata. So the toothed vagina. And I came across the toothed vagina through a Japanese myth that is the origin story of the penis festival that happens outside Tokyo once a year and there's a massive phallus that is carried through the streets and there's a shrine to this phallus and there's an entire narrative involving a demon I'll explain the story a devil falls in love with a woman she's so beautiful she's like what is this you're a devil I'm absolutely not having any of it And then the devil crawls inside to her vagina when she's probably sleeping, I should imagine. And she falls in love with some man. They get married. They're about to consummate their marriage. And uh, lo and behold, the devil bites off this man's penis and he bleeds to death. She meets another man and the same thing happens. And she goes to the local blacksmith and she says, please, could you forge me a penis of steel? Gosh, I should have researched this before <laughs> I re-researched this thing. Forge me a penis of steel or some other metal. And he does. <laughs> and then she goes to place this big metallic dildo into herself and all the devil's teeth come out. I don't know after that if the devil remains in her vagina, but he's toothless and he can no longer cut off the penises of her lovers. And so she's free. But I don't know if he stays in there. Like it's 
So it's the big kind of metallic phallus that is worshipped as a result of this narrative. So that's an example of the mythology that I'm drawn to. But then as I have like wandered about and spent time in different places, so in Iceland and in Cyprus and in Lisbon, I've kind of been like a magpie collecting different stories and narratives and, and mythologies and incorporating the symbolism of them into probably more, my painting the most. So yeah, the miracle of the roses from Lisbon is something that I took and has in, informed quite a lot of paintings. And then Charybdis and Scylla in Cyprus informed a whole work. So yeah, I have no specific location for the mythologies that I I'm drawn to, but I like them to be vivid, maybe involve something close to a genital area, possibly have some sort of hybrid creature in, and maybe a bit of blood and gore. Yeah, that would be it. That's all you asked for. That's all I require in my (laughs) mythologies. Absolutely. Do you like Angela Carter? Oh my God, I love Angela Carter, Knights of the Circus. Yeah, me too. So much. I've got the bloody chamber here, the short stories anthology. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely. I was really obsessed with Angela Carter because she's just like collected all of these incredible folklore and fairy tales and these very like moralistic but really yeah. weird and surreal stories that would just be passed down from generation to generation. Oh, they're just so great, aren't they? Yeah, Bluebeard's Castle and all of that. And then the reimagining of Little Red Riding Hood. Absolutely love Angela Carter. Been obsessed since I was a kid. And actually, I'm co-curating with the lovely artist Hayden Albrow a exhibition and I think that's going to go on the reading list for that exhibition at Staffordshire Street that's coming up in June for sure because it's so like monstrous feminine and just oh I love her yes massive fan so you said that your work features a generously grotesque combined with flashy carnival ridiculousness but a lot of artists are out to make something aesthetically pretty yet you face this head-on and create hideous yet humorous beings which almost belong on a stage in a little shop of horrors kind of way I love this about your work and I think a lot of people are bored of looking at one-dimensional pretty works that might tie in with their curtains give me something with bones something that has something to say something which stirs emotion and your work does all of that are you ever tempted to make this kind of work or does the grotesque naturally flow from your hand that's a really lovely thank you for saying you love my work that's really nice like 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 that that's gorgeous thank you um obviously otherwise I wouldn't be showing your work yeah I do (laughs) that's lovely and I am grotesque I am a grotesque person I am drawn to the grotesque absolutely love it when I was little, my dad collected 14 Times magazine and that's an obsession. The kind of absolutely ridiculous stories of people spontaneous, well, not ridiculous. I mean, if it's true, it's terrifying. Spontaneous combustion, hauntings, bearded women. And I was convinced that I'd be a bearded woman when I became 12. And I was sort of sitting there with anticipation and excitement and anxiety and I never became that bearded woman I've got like a faint moustache but nothing kind of as her suit as some of those amazing bearded women of the past but yeah absolute obsession with things that maybe fall out of the perception of the norm or or present as something that's not quite so everyday or kitchen sink or maybe rub against the everyday so something that I suppose I mean the uncanny would be the word to cover that that kind of thing that is just slightly off it's so real it's too real or so yeah grotesquerie is definitely where my heart lies and I love to make bulbous sculptures and paintings and things that kind of welcome and unsettle at the same time perhaps maybe it's just another example of our patriarchal society in that women are expected to produce something that is pretty do you ever feel those pressures on you or have you ever felt that pressure on you because you're a woman you should be making something that's pretty and pleasant I've never felt that pressure on me but I understand that there's that whole like beauty myth that's attached to aspects of womanhood which is really deeply problematic I never felt it probably until I was a more mature person I think when I was little 
I was allowed to be Pinocchio for six months. I was allowed to be an alligator and eat off the floor. <laughs> I had a really sort of like rumble tumble childhood that was very like a thespian thing and running around and like sleeping in the coats at parties. And I wore like the most elaborate dresses, but with like short, short, short hair. And I was a boy and I was a girl and I was whatever I wanted to be really. And that was really gorgeous. And then as a child, I think, yeah, maybe I thought about gender. I lived in France for a year when I was eight in a small town. And that was the first time I encountered being expected to behave in a different way as a female person and that was quite shocking to me because I used to play kiss chase and I used to chase the boys and they said absolutely not here we just wait for them to chase us and catch us and kiss us and I just wasn't feeling that energy at all yeah I think I've been allowed a lot of freedom to just be whatever I wanted to be from a very early age and so that has always been a shock when people haven't expected that I've not felt the need to make anything pretty because I've just always felt like I want to sort of bite and tear and scratch and scream and I've rarely apologized for that behavior and aren't your parents in theater yeah my mum's a playwright and my dad's a theater director and my mum was an actor and so when I was little I was always on tour with my mum like being left with a wig ladies while she was on stage and hanging out with all the other theatre kids and there'd be parties where the little people from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves would be there and someone would fall asleep in my Wendy house and the actors would be wearing short wigs on top of long hair because you needed to have the versatility of having long hair but they wanted to try having short hair for a day and so you'd have these toppling wigs on top of hair on top of something else it was a lot of fun a lot of giggling maybe quite a lot of high octane emotion and ridiculous ways of expressing yourself at times but also maybe quite free I don't know exploring the facade in some ways but I don't know any other way of being a a person growing up but it was always really fun and yeah I was definitely allowed to run I was a free range child and as an only child like very involved in conversation so I would be like an extra on a film that my dad made and that was exciting to sort of wear a frock and go and sit in the bus and eat a sandwich with an actor in an outfit I don't know yeah and it's definitively informed my work because it's always been theatrical even in my BA it was all about the circus and I went to Edinburgh Festival and was weirdly like the artist in residence at the Edinburgh Tattoo and just sat backstage drawing all the band and that was really weird so it's in my lived experience of life and so inevitably has formed part of the DNA of my work I should imagine yeah. Yeah, I definitely think so. There's a lot of theatricality in camp and your work can be seen from about a mile away, which is something you have to think about when you make a stage set. I do see my work as stage sets as well. Like Now, I think before I was maybe a bit less conscious and maybe trying to like escape the theatrical and the performative. And so I was battling against it and I was, I'm a very serious, but well, I would never thought I was a very serious person, but... I'm a person who makes paintings. I'm definitively not a performer or someone who would have anything to do with the props and the stage sets. But now I just have embraced the fact that that's what excites me. And so everything is a large scale theatre world that I want people to come in and experience for sure. So your hybrid creatures are sewn from oversaturated fabric and painted gaudily. They're like rides at a theme park, familiar but warped, serving equal measures of fun and menace. Do you think that they are friendly? They're definitely friendly. Absolutely. I, they're generously grotesque. They invite you in. They want to be a host. I love hosting things and I want everyone to come and hug and be invited to the party for sure. They're maybe winking at you. They're maybe a bit oversaturated. They may be a bit over enthusiastic. They might not know how to articulate themselves in a way that's like 
always gentle, but they they're friendly for sure. Love that. <laughs> I think that they're totally friendly. Like, and I almost felt bad earlier calling them grotesque because they're not grotesque. They're quite sweet and lovable little characters. They almost don't really know what to do with themselves. You know, like uh, when a creature has like slightly too long fingers and or a slightly too long neck and they just don't really know oh. how to pose themselves. They're a little bit awkward. <laughs> almost like they're kind of trying to find their center of gravity they're definitely awkward and I think it's interesting that you mentioned gravity because that's something that recently I thought that I hadn't realized and then I realized that in painting you don't have to think about gravity and gravity doesn't matter and that was such a freeing moment when I thought oh I don't have to subscribe to physics aside from how the paint will work which is probably chemistry on the page (laughs) slash canvas but yeah taking like the basic laws of physics out of what you want to do is really freeing and I think that with that in mind I need to push further and make everything longer and more awkward and more jangly and more jostling and yeah I think I'm kind of maybe attempting to push that at the moment the, the kind of weird floaty but I think my work is quite sweet but then people think it's quite adult in its nature just because there's some genitals in there which is interesting to me because I don't think so much about the sexual when I'm making them but I feel like they're inflatable things with that are stuffed with air but maybe I need to be more solid and give them some sort of juicy backbone or something and fill them with something better than stuffing and air and maybe fill them with sawdust and hatred. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> hatred? I don't know. I feel like... Sawdust is one thing. Hatred? <laughs> know, sawdust and Get some Margate sand in there. They'd love a bit of that. A bit of sand, <laughs> exactly. A bit more concrete, something a bit hard. Mm. You alluded to the idea of touch and so... This is like such a big thing in the art world, isn't it? That you can't touch. And how do you feel about that? Because obviously, especially your soft sculptures, you want to touch them. You want to get involved with them. How do you feel about touching? I love touching. I want to touch things all the time. I'd love people to touch all of my artwork. I want to make it quite robust so that it is tactile, but I've not encountered a level of success that that many of people have touched my work you know you maybe get a couple of hundred but you won't get thousands of people touching it so I haven't had to make it that incredibly robust my work is made for like performative elements as well and so it has to be sustained through being bashed about in a way and if it doesn't then that's fine it will just get bashed about I feel like although I'm serious about my practice I'm not precious about the artwork as a commodity which is probably problematic if you're thinking from a commercial perspective but it is a DIY aesthetic you know it it is handmade and I want people to see the handmade qualities but I also you know if you put a bit of faux fur on something someone's gonna want to touch it aren't they if you put a bit of shiny next to fluffy what do you think is going to happen I suppose And I want to think about how to realise those textures in painting alone, but also how to bring those materials into the painting as well. Yeah, I'm a massive fan of touching. And I think you mentioned that I'm like co-director of Bad Art with Anna Chitova and Tom Coates. And Bad Art is Anna Chitova's baby. In the last year, we did this show called Touch Me Baby for people to touch. And that was amazing. But yeah. I think it's tricky though and with baby influencers when they post about art shows and then a big group of toddlers descend on the work and maybe are not so gentle in their tactile dialogue with the work it can become a bit problematic so that's the only reason I would temper my enthusiasm for touching things because I've seen things disintegrate in tiny hands and it's quite distressing to watch. But yeah, I personally, with my work, 
by and large, I'm happy for people to touch it. But I think that it's usually obvious when the work is inviting you to touch it and when it's not. I think wall-based work is often slightly less tactile because it's like attached to a wall. But then I made this piece that was in the Saatchi London Grads Now show and that had like real dummies in it as the teats. And I thought that that was inevitably a touchable artwork. But then at the same time, I suppose the context of that was in a massive group show in a big institution. And so maybe within that context, people are less comfortable with touching it. So that soft sculpture emerged unscathed. So I was quite surprised. I thought it would be falling apart at the seams. But yeah, I don't know. I like if things get broken, it's quite nice to fix them in a way that kind of shows the the narrative of what that object has been through as well. But it is funny because there was that Louise Bourgeois show at the Hayward. And because the last show I had seen of her work, she hadn't been dead, the big retrospective. And then this one, she was dead. And it was just like, well, now she's dead. And, you know, it's all don't touch. There's all like lines. It was a really different energy. It was like, now this could not be fixed by the artist's hand or whatever. I don't know. But it felt there was a real shift in the way those artworks became relics almost. And I thought that was quite interesting to me because I, yeah, it was a really different experience to when I'd seen shows of hers when she had not been dead. And were you allowed to touch the artwork when she was alive? I don't think you're allowed to, but um, your experience of the artwork was less intruded upon by barriers and beeping sounds and guards and stuff. But that's inevitable, possibly, probably. But I'm a big fan of touching please more touching thank you (laughs) and at your bad art exhibition but did you have many people touching because obviously like it's called touch me babies so you'd expect people to be like yeah yeah I can touch this but were people still a bit scared or did they just go for it definitely people did touch there was like a hand that was wibbly wobbly that people very lovingly were shaking as a greeting and there actually some stuff that was not really to be touched but we did hang it a bit higher we were like, this is so high that you probably cannot touch it. But by and large, people were respectful. But I've recently had a few stories about overzealous tiny hands. And I am a companion of someone with tiny hands. And that does fill me with some level of horror. <laughs> like the tiny hands escaping and causing all sorts of untold damage. But by and large, it was lots of respectful, consensual touching, which is really the word of the day anyway nowadays, I should imagine. Rightfully so. <laughs> so I've also seen that you incorporate performance into your works, clad in hand-painted clothing or leotards, with your soft sculptures playfully bouncing out of the hemlines. You perform in front of your artworks, sometimes even moving them around. What does the performance element bring to your work and is it an important part of your practice? Yeah, the performance element is really important to the practice, in my opinion. I think it animates the work and I think that it has the capacity to give it a time-based element. So often with painting, it can feel quite static and I try to work in series a lot with painting or work across a key narrative and make lots of work that's kind of offshoots of this particular narrative. All of the paintings that I've been making in the last two or three years have been part of this world that's kind of growing. So the world is kind of a structure on which to hang the work as well as various different narratives that are informed by maybe the place that I am at at the time or personal aspects of my personal narrative and mythology. But when the performance comes into play, it really helps to give the work a beginning, middle and an end in a way. I mean, it's not narrative based performance. Usually the performance is got singing elements or ritual elements or is quite loose. And that's recent performance. Previous performance was my alter ego, Bella Lordworth, who was a masked performer with a fictional girl band who did a lot of queer cabaret performances and travelled the UK and performed in places like 
Oxfordshire and Birmingham and Lisbon and and other places. And Bella Lord Wolf, Bella and the Lord Wolfs was a band, but Bella Lord Wolf was originally created as a historian who chronicled the fictional worlds that I made. I made a museum in 2013 and I needed a historian. And so I created this historian who was the chronicler of the the Cluin dynasty, which was this dynasty of clowns. And I made a lot of artifacts and QR codes that people would beep back in 2013. This is properly using up and coming technology at the time. But yeah, there was a whole audio guide that went with this museum experience. And Bella Lord was quite straight laced historian character, but then she became an outlet for anything that I wanted to try. I thought this masked character can fail in ways that I can't. And so it was a way to try things without being laughed at. And so suddenly I thought, well, I want to have a band. And so I was like, well, this alter ego can have a band. And also the alter ego had a painting practice. And this alter ego took over my life. And then um, for her fifth birthday, I had to do a show where it was her fifth birthday party. And then I sort of, I didn't kill her, but I had to basically rid my life of her because she was taking over every strand of my practice in a way that I wasn't really comfortable with. So my performance practice now has to be me rather than her and has to remove the mask to like maybe include a level of vulnerability and connection with the audience. Because although she was quite a popular performer in the niche context in which she performed, I felt like, that mask was a barrier between me and the audience and I had to start making things with bigger holes bigger eye holes and mouth holes specifically (laughs) just to be clear what which orifices were being enlarged (laughs) and so I had to enlarge these holes in order to uh, break the barrier between me and the audience gosh so yes it was a great way to experiment she was a really brilliant tool in making me do things that I wouldn't have done and go outside of my comfort zone. But then I realised that she became a barrier between maybe a next level of vulnerability that I needed to show. So I'm still experimenting with what me personally as a performer is within my work. I make costumes that are pre-painted bits of calico that like reflect the paintings that I'm working on. And usually if I'm at a residency and I'm working on a particular artwork for whatever the show is or the open studio is, I will make a piece of clothing or a brooch or some wearable artwork so that I can communicate with the work and be an extension of the work. And it's quite handy in terms of like the artist persona to be wearing something that visibly connects you to a work, especially in like a group show, you become approachable, people talk to you and you have a nice time. And is it important to you for your artist persona to be a part of the work? I think it's just important for my personality because I love parties and I love socialising and I love being with people. Yeah, I think it's I want to welcome you into the world and I want to be a gateway into the artwork. And I suppose it's useful for me to use my body and to use my body as a way of making the two-dimensional work three-dimensional and animating the work as well and so it kind of is a way to be social and approachable but also to bring the work to life and introduce sculptural elements in a way that is quite quick and easy. So I was also very proud to see you recently installing an exhibition with your babe in arms Has your practice changed at all since becoming a mother? Yes, it has changed both thematically and logistically, for sure. That installation was, I mean, it wasn't the plan. The plan was that he would have a nap somewhere in a corner in a pram, but inevitably that didn't happen. And so I was wearing him and drilling things. But yeah, nothing goes to plan with a baby about. So I think that my work, definitely drew on the personal and the bodily and so inevitably the act of conception and pregnancy and 
then motherhood has come into the language of the work. So I made an artwork in Cyprus, Charybdis and Scylla, which is kind of goes back to the sort of vagina dentata mythology, like a whirlpool and a multi-headed gnashing monster but both identified as female and they kind of eat these sailors alive in a gruesome watery sensual death but that painting became about the fear of conception and everything became quite spunky and quite spermy and this vagina with a gaping mouth and then I was invited to participate in a performance by lovely Rosie Gibbons in October of some year whatever year it was when I was secretly pregnant and I made an artwork where I was dressed as a big vagina dentata booty and everyone had to throw balls into my open mouth at the end. And that was obviously related to conception and this kind of horror at the idea of spunking inside you, which is something I'm not a fan of at all, but was necessary because I was hoping to have some sort of baby. I absolutely despised pregnancy. It was not my best look or vibe I really didn't enjoy it and I wasn't excited I was just livid I just felt hungover all the time and like a lump and so I think the work that I made was these bulbous protruding landscape mountain bodies that were kind of the ground to the paintings that I was making so if you look at the paintings around that time you can see sort of swollen bellies and legs as kind of the background to where all the action is happening and once you see it it's really obvious but yeah so it's definitely come into the work and then some of the work that's in the liminal gallery show this like grabby pillow painting with these tiny little ceramic hands is kind of that there's three of the hands and I think that now if I remade that work it would have 20 hands all these little hands these little hard pinchy hands that to grabbing and pinching they're hard to the softness of the pillow it's all a primary sensory experience that I'm trying to recapture in an artwork it's maybe domestic which makes it maybe feel quite intimate so yeah I mean that's the way that it's informed my practice in terms of what I'm making and then in terms of logistically it's just taken away quite a lot of time that I have to make work since the baby's come I think I went through a kind of absolute insane period of trying to do everything when I was pregnant I was up a ladder in Lisbon I was attempting to get as many residencies in as I possibly could I was trying to like book up as many shows I had this absolute terror of losing myself and so I just frantically made work and now I have like significantly less time in the studio and that time has to be really really focused and I just have to get on with it whether I like it or not which is absolutely fine I'll make smaller work at the kitchen table after the baby's gone to sleep and I mean I've got a baby they don't stay babies forever there'll be another thing and it'll be another thing and it'll be another thing but I'm going on a residency to the Van Gogh house in Zunder and that will be interesting because this baby what is going to be like 11 months 10 months and who knows whether it will walk or do any other damage so (laughs) just it's an absolute learning curve and the past couple of years I got into the Slade I did the Slade the Slade really like kicked me up the arse to work really hard and make space for my practice and before that it was like balancing various jobs with studio time and everything else and then with the Slade I was like basically said to my partner I'm not really going to talk to you for two years but I love you and that's it and then I was very much in the Slade and then doing my weekend job and that was it and and then you know then I was pregnant and I was frantically trying to make as much work as I possibly could and taking unpaid leave so I could just do all of these things and now I've got a baby and I've got to make as much work as I can when I can and be disciplined in that way but yeah so that's how it's changed but I'm not having a bad time I'm having a nice time and I'm happily busy and my artistic career currently hasn't come to an absolute standstill so that's a lovely thing and I think a change from when I was graduating from my BA and people were talking about they hid their kids sort of in a hole and pretended they weren't parents I think 
the lay of the land has changed significantly this time around graduating than that time around graduating for sure. That's interesting to know. I am curating a art and a postcard collection, which you are a part of for the International Women's Day, raised money for the Hepatitis C Trust. You can register to bid now. And I have a folder of artist mums that I have collected on Instagram. Every time I come across an interesting artist mum, I save it because I love the idea of supporting artist mums. So I've just invited artist mums to this collection. And I needed an extra couple of people and I found it so difficult to find people that either yes I am a mum and every now and then like a baby will pop up in a photo or whatever but people really don't and I don't choose to share my son because I don't really want people to see his face I don't know I'm just weird about it but also I've never hidden the fact that I am a mum and I think I've got some photos on my Instagram hat but it's just I think there is still this idea that if you're a mum, you're not going to be taken as seriously as if you just don't mention them or have any kind of nod to them. And I think that that's just so sad that, yeah, things have improved, but then there is still this kind of unwritten rule or people aren't quite sure of the lay of the land. And so they'd rather just not mention it just in case it affects them in some way. Totally. And I didn't tell the majority of my professional connections that I was pregnant until probably three weeks before having the baby and people who were like potentially buying work and putting me in shows I was like oh. um, and my Instagram was very hidden and I was making larger and larger performative outfits to kind of conceal this this pregnancy and then through Elephant Lab residency I had a crit with Hetty Judah and I just was like, do you know what? I've just got to go for it because it's inevitable. It was not inevitable that it'll come out, but it's like part of me is like, why do I have to share that personal element on Instagram, which is I perceive as my professional face of myself. But then I thought I do feel like there's a change and there were some really, really visible artist mothers on Instagram. And I just thought, do you know what? let's give it a go and see what happens and actually it's not been as devastating to things that I've been offered at all but there's people I've met who I knew when I was at City and Guilds who have had kids or were mothers and didn't mention it and have kept that hidden so there's plenty of people who you just don't know what their parental status is because it was so taboo 10 years ago like so so taboo and that's really depressing and I feel that everyone chooses what they want to do but I'm now relatively pleased that I've said it because it does free me up from having to lie about it in the future and I do think that it's still a taboo and I do think that it will still be held against me but then another part of me just thought it's going to be held against me anyway as a person who identifies as a woman inevitably there's going to be that sense that I might have kids and that would already be a block to some people anyway whether I did or didn't and I did it when I interviewed for the elephant lab residency I said I didn't know whether to mention this or not but I am seven months pregnant and I'm going to tell you that now and I was a bit like how can I describe my face big Wallace and Gromit mouth of anxiety and eek But when they responded so positively and when I had people see me being visibly pregnant and still inviting me to do things, I thought, actually, maybe it's going to be okay. But it's it's early days. Who knows? But I feel like probably because you feel like you've got about a million things to prove, haven't you? And it's a bit sad that you feel that pressure. But I felt that pressure basically from like the get go to sort of be present in every way and I I gave myself three months to be not present but even in those three months I was seeing shows and posting about it at 10 days old I was at the sleigh grad show breastfeeding in the quad Instagramming about my favorite do you know it's just ridiculous but it's just you feel like I've got to be there because the second I disappear everyone will forget me in two seconds but then at the same time it is like a part of yourself. And if you don't connect with that part of yourself, you then do feel erased by just, I mean, what, like nappies, breast milk and 
by everything, just every aspect. I find it more interesting to retain a sense of self. So your artworks take up space with huge, all-consuming installations, the vibrancy and general rightness of them enveloping the viewer into this fantastical world of yours. How do you want the viewer to feel when approaching your work, all consumed and a part of it, or from afar studying your creatures as if under a microscope? I definitely want the viewer to feel like it's an immersive experience, for sure. I definitely want them to walk into the space and feel enveloped and part of this production with like paintings falling down from the wall to the floor, bringing you into the space, suggesting performance, suggesting that you could interact or peep through things, suggesting that you could theoretically touch stuff or move things or just be in enveloped by the worlds that I create that would be the ideal and incorporating sound elements video elements everything to make the space sing and to make it a multi-sensory experience for the viewer slash audience slash participant slash citizen of this imagined space but then if people want to sit back and look at it from afar they're welcome to because once it's out of my hands it's out there in the world and I can't be precious about the way in which people interact and view with it for sure. There is also a sense of claustrophobia in your works and maybe it is this all-consuming feeling but even in your smaller works such as Spring Clean, the knees painting in our exhibition there's so much happening that you can't help but feel claustrophobic maybe for yourself but also for your characters and space seems to be a big part of your practice. Is this something that you're playing with? Definitely playing with space, absolutely. I think I went into the two-dimensional. I've like been playing with the two dimensions for a little bit, but at the Slade, I really, because I was doing a painting MFA, I started making sculptures inevitably. Of course. And <laughs> Everyone does, course, don't they? Because that's what you do. You're <laughs> yeah. like, ah, I can't handle this. <laughs> Everyone is too intense. I'm going to go and probably use some expanding foam. But yeah, I was making three-dimensional work, but treating it like a two-dimensional work through painting and it flattened everything and made you read the three-dimensional work as a two-dimensional work. And I found that interesting. And it made me think about how things are perceived in space, how you treat things differently using different mediums and how that might affect the experience of the viewer. And I really want people to come outside inside I was making I mean like every art student a bloody tent inevitably a tent but I made a tent that people could go into that was kind of a big skirt with big feet that you'd go and watch the tv in and I made this enormous boob that never got finished because of the pandemic and it was huge and it was like painted like the inside of a church with all of these pointy hands and a single light bulb and it was all in reaction to experiencing a little chapel that had had a fresco on it and the fresco had been removed before the chapel was submerged by flood water and it had been recreated in I think the Prado in Madrid and I went on a art school journey there and just the experience of thinking you knew where you were you were in a museum it was a big space and then you walked into this smaller space and then everything changed the acoustics changed the language of the painting changed the language of the space changed and it, it doesn't sound like a lot but I think it's that feeling of crossing a threshold into somewhere different is something that I felt was quite powerful in that moment and that I would like to recreate through making installations and sometimes I want them to be big and all-encompassing and sometimes I want them to be like just putting your head in something and that action of putting your head into that hole is the thing that transforms your experience so yeah space is key to that and I need to keep exploring it and thinking about the sculptural potential of paintings and thinking about how I can manipulate people through my work into experiencing the space differently in ways that are economical <laughs> and effective <laughs> there we go so space and gravity yeah gravity the problem that I had with sculpture 
was having just thought about how I could just do away with gravity in painting, I then realised that with sculpture, gravity is there. And that was a shock. I'd literally just left gravity behind me and was really excited. And then <laughs> I had to re-encounter gravity and I'm still struggling with gravity in the real world to create objects. A shock to the system. So yeah, gravity is is now my nemesis. <laughs> and it used, yeah, I'm just livid that it exists in the real world. Although it's probably useful. Because if there was no gravity, then what would your sculptures be doing? What is it about gravity that's changing things for you? I think it's just assuming things would stand up. And they just don't. You have to think about how they have a base or feet to sit on, you know, and that's probably, well, might be partly why inflatable stuff I am drawn to. But then that's got its own whole shenanigans and physics that needs to be addressed. But at least inflatable things don't necessarily need to be so weighed down with gravity as much as other problems but yeah gravity was a shocker I just made a bunch of top heavy stuff that just fell over which is fine but wasn't ideal and you've got to experiment and fail and be rejected several times a day or week or month and that's your life so yeah it's fine I'm not over it but I'm working against gravity on a daily basis you did make some inflatable arms, didn't you? The arms that give you a hug. Yeah, the hugging hands. Yeah, and I made inflatable work kind of in response to working on the bad art show Hot Air, which was in an inflatable exhibition, all inflatable artworks. And I and I took on the role as there were quite a lot of invited artists who had a bad art DIY aesthetic but hadn't necessarily made inflatable art before. And I was kind of in that camp. And together we attempted to learn how to make inflatable artwork and all had a collective nightmare. And it involved a lot of really hardcore glue and sort of fans with different battery capacities. So that's why I made the move into inflatable artwork. You can almost make a doodle and make the doodle into something that you hook up to a fan and it, it's quite effective and and rather playful so that's what I like about that it gives it a whole different personality doesn't it if it's kind of moving around exactly yeah rather than it being a a limp or flaccid thing yeah and it definitely feeds into the whole animating the space creating a sense of time in the work and also playing with notions of space and inviting and party and carnival for sure So I found this great quote where you said of your work, it's always been about the carnivalesque, about theatricality and humour, but also thinking about political potential and the licence of the fool. Who do you see as the fool? Yourself, your creatures or the viewers? I am the fool. I think I made Bella Lordwarf as this masked character so she could have the licence of the fool. I was thinking about the Lord of Misrule and the Thierry Leroy when you choose someone to be the king for the day and the idea of power being flipped on its head and also thinking about the capacity for satirical comedy to sometimes hold power to account and how comedy can be quite serious and humour can be quite serious. And I also don't want to take myself too seriously. I take the work seriously, but not myself seriously. I find self-seriousness in people quite a turn off and it makes them funny to laugh at to me and so I'd rather be laughed with and have the vulnerability of not taking myself too seriously. It is a vulnerability for sure having that certain sense within you that you're not afraid to laugh at yourself you're not afraid to let other people laugh at you as well but as a collective I think so. Maybe it's also about that preciousness. I don't want to be precious about my work. I want to understand that quite a lot of it will be an absolute failure and not achieve what it's meant to. And I think that's it's quite freeing when you think like that. But lots of people find it quite, I don't know, they're like, take it seriously. We all take ourselves so seriously. Why are you not taking us and yourself seriously? 
And I just, I find that response quite <sighs> dull, deeply dull. And I'm not there for that party. Do you know, I don't want to go there. I think you also said before that the art world doesn't really see the power in humour because there is a lot of power in humour and a lot of change is made through humour. A lot of the way that ideas are reached to the masses is through humour, through whether it be interesting TV shows or theatre. There's a lot of power in humour and a lot can be said through humour because that's the thing that invites you in that is like the warm hug before you whisper some kind of political context into someone's ear. Like spitting image, yeah. That's it. Spitting image energy is definitely something. Yeah, I think the art world is not great. I Maybe I'm thinking about art school experiences where humour is not particularly seen as valid or is like the lowest rung of critique. Or there's not much engagement with that. It's not given as much credence as it could be. I think it is devalued quite a lot in the art world and I'm not 100% sure why. But then you get Jonathan Baldock, who's hilarious, and there's a lot of really funny artists who are being really funny and using humour in many different ways, some of them political and some of them self-facing, criticising the art world. And I just think I'm drawn to that work and think it's more interesting. I think the art world can devalue humour as a a means of expression and maybe doesn't necessarily recognise its power all the time. Did you find at art school you had to justify your reasons for using humour or were they quite accepting? I think maybe that in some contexts, maybe specifically in painting, humour wasn't seen to have such a place and was seen as a deflection from deep thought rather than a tool to achieve thought in a different way. And I can understand why people would see humour as a, also not a source of being vulnerable, but a source of putting a another mask up. And I think there's can be often emphasis on deep personal journey, which I find can be a tricky way to... <laughs> approach teaching art sometimes I'm speaking around something and I'm not really touching it on the head but I think that quite a bit of the art school teaching that I came into contact was was about soul searching as opposed to communicating in different ways potentially and I think that within that humor was seen as a deflection rather than a means to expressing something in a different way and I think that the power that humour has wasn't kind of acknowledged by quite a lot of people and it was just seen as silly, which it is, but it also is powerful. So, yeah, I think there was a bit of, shall we have a therapy session? <laughs> a bit at times, which wasn't necessarily the dream always. Yeah. and As a tutor, you have to be a bit of a comedian and do what's right for the person. And that is obviously... Not where you're headed, but good on you for sticking at your guns. I mean, I was fully there to be torn to shreds and built back up, and I fully was. And I was very there to make myself vulnerable, to take on lots of suggestions and rip apart my practice and sew it back together again. I was there for that, and I thoroughly enjoyed it and had a great time, and it was definitely worth it. It was definitely the closest I've come to feeling like I could see things that weren't there, almost, and totally feel losing your grip on some sort of reality I've never felt that close to not being fully certain of what reality was as I was in my MFA but it was all worth it and I definitively feel like my practice grew from that experience and I'm pleased I did it but pleased I'm not in that anymore and two years was enough of that for sure but I think that a lot of people come out of those experiences and feel like it was a roller coaster and I wouldn't go back on it I loved every minute of it and also felt every moment of it deeply and was aware that my life was going to be taken over by this intense and insane experience. So another part of your practice is curation and also collaboration and 
you have collaborated with a choir for your MFA show. You yes. have held yes. residencies in your garden shed. You were a part of a patio project where you displayed some of your artwork yeah. on a patio during the pandemic. You do bad art. You curate with Lindsay yeah. G. McLean and Isabel Atticus. And I love that you are a part of that, that you're building your community. You're supporting other artists. They're supporting you. I think that that's just such an important part of any artist's life but I say any artist but it takes a certain type of person to be able to curate with other people and to get involved in these things do you think that that's a really important part of your artistic life yeah the curatorial side I think springs from necessity and that my practice for me it needs to be seen and interacted with and if no one's going to show my work, I've got to find a way to show it. So, you know, you'll find an empty shop and you'll put the work on. But I'm always drawn to people who are like hustling to get stuff done and thinking outside the box. And Gaff Space was really fun. Like we had some amazing artists come and work in the shed and exhibit in the shed. And Mrs. Potato Head made everyone mashed potato around the table. And that was like a gorgeously surreal experience. And yeah, Patio Project was Georgia Stevenson's project which was to give people who were due to have a grad show but couldn't because of the pandemic kind of a place to exhibit their work on her patio which was lovely and yeah Isabel Atticus I found her through moving to Walthamstow and seeing that she was running the Icing Room Collective which was from her living room and through the Icing Room Collective have done stuff in music rehearsal rooms and the tube and things like that so Bella Lordwolf turned water into wine on the Victoria line about three years ago so all of these lovely experiences my god I didn't hear about this in the newspapers <laughs> I know it happened and they sat on that really phenomenal miracle <laughs> some urban mythology right there feeding into someone's practice somewhere I just bloody love having a gorgeous time with gorgeous humans and like to have my work shown or at least have some people see it and interact with it. it. That feeds me. So it's really important for me. But at the same time, I do often tell myself that I need to stop facilitating other people's vision and just focus on my work. But I am not someone who can just do one thing only. I I have been criticised for it, but I've realised after a lot of self-searching that it is the only way that I can work which is to have seven things on the go and I am unapologetic for that and that is how I work and so I need to have a little sculpture being made while I also have a big painting on the go while I'm also planning the next curatorial project while I'm also having a espresso martini with a friend like I require people and laughter and interaction and celebration and I think that that feeds into my practice. What do you enjoy most about your practice? Having the idea and working towards the idea so a bit like thinking through making in the studio and getting excited when I've thought of something and thinking of all the possible places that it could go and starting on that journey and maybe if I'm making something sculptural all the bits coming in like today some osb board arrived and some two by four arrived some wood glue arrived and i was like oh and some hula hoops some 92 centimeter diameter hula hoops arrived and i was like ah i know what i think i'm going to do with that but will i do that with that i don't know so that's yeah the idea and the starting and the the making so what do you find the most frustrating about your practice currently i would say the lack of time and not have a time to get on a absolute roll for five days solid but I think that's hopefully a short-lived thing and I'm going to do this residency and that's going to be a month so I think that will kickstart some really nice ideas but yeah at the moment time is a frustration and also I just have such obscene ambitions but I require enormous budget and space and time and a flurry of assistance to realize them so I just, yeah, all of those things are the biggest frustrations. That's a lot of frustrations. Currently. I'm really sorry. <laughs> so much daily frustration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, I hope that you'll get some time in the studio. That would be nice. Do you limit yourself at the moment? Do you have a couple of days a week where you're solidly in the studio? I always have a Monday in the studio. Always. My Monday is sacred and that is ring fenced. Then the rest of it is like responsive to what I have to do recently because I've been involved in the curatorial process for a few shows. That kind of admin and install, deinstall kind of vibe has taken over. But as of now, it's going to be more making. I'm getting, you know, Gilbert Baselwood. I've got to make a bunch of sculpture. I've got some shows coming up in June. So that time is going to be reallocated to making, making, making. And then the residency is going to be a month of pure making, which is so exciting. That's all my questions. So Flora Bradwell, thank you so much for joining me today on the Liminal Gallery podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Hooray. Thank you for having me. I've had a gorgeous time. Try Little Tenderness is a fifth show in Liminal Gallery's new home at 34 Fort Hill in Margate. The exhibition continues until the 23rd of February and will open Thursdays 11 till 4pm, Saturdays 11 till 3pm and outside of these times by appointment. More information can be found on our website liminal-gallery.com. Thank you so much for listening to Liminal Gallery podcast with me, Louise Fitzjohn, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode featuring Jemima Sara, who will be the first artist exhibiting in our new second exhibition space, The Cupboard, with her installation entitled The Toilet. Bye for now. (laughs) 